All right, here we go. Uh, welcome to Potso One, Episode Four. Got my buddy Tom Greco with us. Tom is. Uh, I think we start with this. You're five one. <laughs> I'm actually four foot ten inches tall. Oh, I thought you were five one. So I was, you, you, but you, I shrunk. Did you shrink, or, or were, have you been lying to me? I got locked in the dryer a couple weeks ago, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, dryer doesn't exist. But no, it sure. does. Uh, it's an industrial strength dryer. Right, I'm, I'm trying not to make fun of uh, Tom's height, so I'll switch to his girth. Right. He's, he weighs 310 pounds. Correct. Uh, <laughs> I, no, Tom, I wear size 54, 21s. Tom, Tom's a good buddy of mine. We uh, knew each other many, many years ago, but then That's we right. got to know each other really well uh, working down in Atlanta for a few years for an unnamed company. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I was going to make up a fun name, but I won't. I won't do that. Yeah, I hear you. So, Tom, welcome to episode four. Glad to have you here. We're actually Thank in you. Tom's basement. We are. My uh, first chance checking out Tom's new house. Uh, Daniel, am I looking away too much? No. All right, sweet. Uh, Tom, you have uh, you're the a man of a thousand stories. I would say. I have a lot of stories. You have lived a, a, an extremely unique life. That is true. I would, I would say. say a uniquely American life, yes. I, I do not mind talking about any aspects of your life. And so we can start where you want to go, or I can hit you with a question. Why don't you hit me with a question, and then we'll we'll go from there. Like, this is your deal. But I'm super pumped to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks thanks for uh, hosting us in your basement. No problem. Awesome. So you have a lot of family stories. I do. Uh, I know some of them. I probably don't know all of them. You have a grandfather who's got an amazing story. And, yes. And a great uncle as well? Or is it just... Uh, the great uncle story, no, like b- both of them, um, the great uncle to a lesser extent, um, but w- who, the man I knew is Grandpa John. Let's go with Grandpa John. Um, so uh, you guys, well, Paul knows uh, I'm I'm an American of Italian descent, but I'm only, uh, you know, I'm second generation, uh, meaning my parents were first generation. My grandparents were not born or more to the point. We're not raised in this country. So um, not the traditional Ellis Island generation either. Post, you know, my, my grandpa John arrived in this country in the late 1940s after World War II. Right. He was born in this country, was an infant in this country. And then my great grandparents were like, hey, New York's way too loud. Too many people. Dear goodness, get us out of here yeah. for the love of humanity. And they were on a boat and gone. They went back home. How old was Grandpa John? He was an infant, a toddler. Like, we're talking sub three years old. Oh, so wow. this was okay. before 1920. Um, grew up in a town, um, my understanding, is a town really close to the city of Agrigento in Sicily. Okay. Um, and before everybody asks, uh, no. Not connected. <laughs> right? Not, not uh, no, no members that I'm aware of, of, you know, the family who have ever been. Sure. True members of Cosa Nostra or the Mafia. You're not. You're not a made man. Is what I am not. Us. I have to work for a living, and there are no Cadillacs in the driveway. So, uh, <laughs> so is that because you don't want them, or you just haven't gotten around? It's to buy because them? I, I'm not in a profession where they are necessary. <laughs> Understand. So, yeah, good times. Um, so, so with that said, though, Grandpa John grew up. He was one of five. He was the oldest boy of five uh, five children, all boys, and uh, uh, his father. Um, actually served time in prison and uh, was in prison for murder um, <laughs> and served. Wait, wait a minute. You can't. What? Yeah. So there was a, a this is the family story. So it this is not, I can't point to data yeah, sure, to be sure. clear. Uh, but from what I understand, there was a deal where it's kind of like, hey, everybody's got to do their time for the uh, local chapter 
of what we Italians call the Boy Scouts of America. Everyone here would call the mafia. And it was like, hey, you know, Gaetano Greco, it's your turn. You're going to go away for a few years and we'll make sure everything's squared away to make this other problem go away. And, and that's not mob? That is the mafia, but okay. we're, but it, it was we were being taxed. We were not participatory. Oh, got mm-hmm. it. So, in other words, this was a requirement upon there being a consequence, not a uh, not a requirement for for further participation. Got it. So, great grandpa went goes to jail for a while. Great grandma Angela collects from people who owe her money by going to their home and taking things. <laughs> Just walks in and takes. She stuff. knocked on the door. Hey, you owe me for flour. You owe me for wheat. You owe me for whatever. She ran a general store. Again, this is pre nineteen twenty five, so we are not talking about you know super modern communications of any kind. This is hey, you were supposed to pay me last week. For, Everything, everything's face to face, right? You 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 were supposed to pay me last week for whatever. You didn't. I'm here to collect. Well, I don't have the money. Good. I'll take that. And that's what she would do. And for lots of reasons, her husband's time commitment, nobody was in a position to really say much to her. And that was how she got along in the world. Super tough lady. He was a super tough dude. From what I understand, they were a classic Italian couple in that they yelled, they screamed at each other, and then they would hold each other in tears and profess their undying love. <laughs> um, not much has changed. Just swinging so, wildly from one end th- to the other. Th- yeah, yeah, just a barbell of emotion at all times. Uh, and by the way, please speed me up as, as you want to. I love this story. but No, uh, this is a really good story. So great-grandpa, or sorry, Grandpa John. I say great-grandpa because that's how I refer to him when I'm talking to my daughter. Right. Grandpa John grows up. And he's uh, he's pretty tough, right? So like he's got to mind all the other four brothers, um, who as they they come along, the the youngest one wasn't there yet, um, but he's got to mind his other brothers. He's got to take care of the of the uh, the family to the best he can, and he's got grandparents that live on both sides of him, right? And he has to do chores for them. So he's typically up around four a.m does a couple of hours worth of chores, goes to school, leaves school, comes home, does more chores till about 7 or 8 o'clock at night, really doesn't do homework, never spent a lot of time in school. Uh, And so in 1934, he's looking for a way out, right? He he wants to go do something different, so he joins. What year was he born? 1917. Okay. So, So he's 17 years old. He's looking for adventure. And again, limited options, right? People think of Italy and Sicily and they think of Rome. They think of, you know, Torino. They think of Milan. Sicily is a pretty, you know, poor area mostly, especially where we're talking. We're not talking about this is an area by the ocean. So there's no fishing money. You know, there's not a lot of harbor trading money. It's straight up. No tourism money. No, no tourism money. This is, this is, people are, you know, working hard to get by, as they say. So he joins Mussolini's military. Um, so to be clear, that sounds crazy, right? Right. But, but he joins Mussolini's military and he serves in North Africa. He serves in, um, do you know what his job was? He was a regular infantry sergeant. He was promoted to sergeant within the first five years of being in the military, but then he moved and became a member of military police shortly thereafter. He was notorious for being super tough and no exceptions. Like, he had a nickname of Granite because that's how flexible he was. Hmm. So why aren't you shaved? Well, I didn't get. Sorry, I got a right chop. Right, like there was no. Yeah. There was no giving him right, and that that's a theme that you know his later life would would definitely play out. Um, 
there was a problem though. And the problem is in, as we get closer to 1939, the Axis powers obviously are starting to concentrate on their one-time ally and their new, uh, their new enemy, Stalin. Right. And I might have the years wrong. So, you know, for, for sake of the podcast, please forgive me. Yeah, all, all, the, all the history buffs out there. We'll edit it out. Um, right. <laughs> we'll just fix it. Or we'll have Daniel's voice do a voiceover for the, with the correct Right. With the correct so, 19. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but, but he is on, put on a train and he's asking, what are my new orders? Now, the reason this is, is significant is because in early 1939, he's assigned to, I think it's Milan. I'm not sure of the city. But he's on, he's military police. And there's a checkpoint. And there's a car coming up to the checkpoint. And it's, you know, sir, I need the password. And it's, I don't have the password, but I'm a colonel. Sir, I'm sorry. This is Grant. Grant's not taking that. Yeah, you, you, you need to give the password. This is a secure location. I can wait if you want to go back and get it. I can send, you know, he tried to, to from what I understand from him, he tried to provide some options. The, apparently this colonel tried to bluff his way through. My grandfather cocked his weapon and pointed it and said, sir, this wow. is not an option. Gutsy. I like it. Well, lieutenants are called, aides are called, a general gets, arrives, and this is all worked out. The password is given. And my grandfather gets what he thinks of as an attaboy from, the, from a general. And... Uh, <laughs> Later that night, when he's done with guard duty, he makes his way into a local tavern and his commanding officer's in there and he says, hey, Giovanni, you did so good tonight. And he goes, yeah, I did good. He goes, you stood tall. You did so good. And he says, what does that mean? And he says, well, we're going to give you a special assignment. (laughs) So tomorrow, come see me. I'm going to give you your new orders. He goes, okay. Well, his new orders are to go to the Russian front. Wow. Wow. And that was how he was thanked for being that tough, right? When he's on the train to Russia, he's approached by somebody who, to this day, or to this day, to when he was telling me the story in the 1980s when I was a kid, he didn't know if they were American. He didn't know if they were Spanish. He didn't know that... It, he knew they were not Italian. That's what he knew. They spoke uh, what he would call high Italian, kind of like the... Italian equivalent of Castilian Spanish. Mm. And so it was hard for him to understand him because Sicilian dialect is even even more thick than someone from Louisiana speaking. It's like Cockney and it is. And it's it's really thick. And and Sicilians have Latin, Etruscan, and Arabic in them. Right? That's the that's the mixture of blood to make and Greek. And Mediterranean. Right. And that when you start going up the Italian peninsula, you start getting a much more Eurocentric, you know, grouping of people. So the language actually becomes a little bit of a barrier. But from what he could make out, this guy said to him, do you want to go to Russia? By the way, in case you don't know, this is a losing proposition. You're going there to die. Like yeah, the Russian front was brutal. Th- th- this, this is, this is a suicide mission. Like we, we know for a fact you were put here because you really ticked off this, this colonel. And so my grandfather was like, who are you? Like, because apparently the guy just came and sat down. No uniform. Conversation goes on for a couple of hours. And it. my grandfather never made it clear to me exactly the, you know, the dialogue that went on. What was made clear was after that was that it had been made clear to my grandfather that 
Jewish people were being killed in Germany and Poland. That if you believed in a God, any God, what was being done was truly evil. And if he wanted to help and not go to Russia and see his family again, then he would get off the train at the next stop. And it might be a good idea if he took off his uniform and went and made contact with one person who would send him to another person. And he did. Without knowing it, my grandfather had joined the Italian resistance in preparation for one of the landings, the major one being Anzio. Yeah. And this would continue. Now, so this is 1939. This would continue all the way to the end of the war. There's not a lot written about the uh, Italian resistance. There's no, a ton on the French resistance. There is because they were truly occupied, right? They right. had a foreign power yeah, it was occupied. Yeah, very, very different set of relationships. Yeah. Very different. Whereas Mussolini made really made the press believe that the Italians were living a very high life. And that's not true at all. In many cases, because of the need for ports, for grain, for wheat, some cases for rock, for, you know, different things that they needed they ran roughshod over a lot of italy not all of it right but the stories you hear about them putting people on the white line outside of vatican city and stuff like that that's for real mussolini just cleaned a lot of that up because right. he was so beholden to hitler what's the white line the white line is uh it's the border between vatican city and the rest of rome vatican city is inside of rome mm-hmm and at that time it's own sovereignty that's right yeah. and and inside at that time daniel if someone were to cross that line with a military purpose especially at that time i would argue overnight and paul back me up here factually yep yeah. 97% of europe i would argue 90% of the united states i would argue 95% of south america are Christian and of that 95%, 75% are Catholic. So the idea that someone would take a military force into the holy city mm-hmm. would change World War II from a war of people looking to expand and, and build an empire, right? The Axis powers into a holy war. And that's. And this was before Pearl Harbor. So yeah, you, you run the risk of bringing. The- Basically, half the world against you. Right. It, it was. It was something that even the German government was not necessarily ready to do. Mm-hmm. And and to be clear, it's pretty well documented. They were also messing with all kinds of stuff throughout Europe in terms of grabbing holy artifacts and trying to auction it off for money. They they needed money. Sure. So so the other part of it was they weren't looking to mess with the church either because they didn't want the church looking into what they were doing and declaring, you know, a. a, a, a a call for all of Christendom to come down on, on the Germans. So, mm. so th- there was kind of a detente there that was okay. Anyway, my grandfather gets involved in, in this Italian resistance specifically for, for Anzio, for what would become Anzio. I don't think he knew, like, right. I don't think anybody was laying out plans. It's not like a movie. Right. But what it was, was steel, honestly, supplies and medicine, uh, report data, a lot of reporting of data of troop movements, truck movements, supply lines, um, bridges and the condition of bridges, weather patterns. There was a lot of that. Well, the problem with it was was that you still had to eat. You still had to have a place to live and all this stuff. So my grandfather took an assumed name in Milan and became a policeman in Milan, crafted a story about a bad leg, which was half true, half made up. 
and proceeded to fall in love with a woman from Switzerland. What was his uh, new name? I don't know. He never oh, shared come it. On. He never shared it. So I, I, I'm being completely honest when I tell you I don't know. Why wouldn't he share it? So you got to understand, Paul. I had to craft this together. This, this is several. Conversations. This is taking a decade. Yeah, yeah, like I started hearing this story when I was four, and I, I put it all together so that by the time when he died, when I was sixteen, I had compiled what I believed to be, you know, the entirety of it. Right. Um, and he's very unclear about his time in Milan, and I think it has to do with this woman. Yeah. And I think it has to do with the fact that he was desperately in love with her. Um. And he's he's a policeman, man. Like he, you know, he talks. He talked about the fact that he was waiting for one guy who was had had stolen something, and he stood on a street corner smoking cigarettes for seven hours, you know, trying to wait for this guy to come out of an apartment so that he could bust him with a minimal minimal amount of you know gunfire type thing. And he was starting to win commendations <laughs> for his work as a policeman. And every time the press would be like, we want to put your picture in the paper, he'd say, no, 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 I'm good. I'm, good. Mm. I'm part of the Italian resistance. Right. Please don't do that. Right. I'm also a deserter. Right. And so everybody's pretty bad at me right now. <laughs> so like, he doesn't want like, that. He's, I don't I don't need any friends right you're now. You're right. No friends. I'm just me and my girl. Like, we're, we're, we're good to go. Well, eventually, he does get put into, the, into a paper or a magazine, a local magazine. And by this time, there is not just Mussolini's troops all over northern Italy, but in preparation for what's about to become, like, now, like, Patton has landed in Sicily. My grandfather is completely terrified that his family is dead because they're, you know, in the path. Um, Montgomery is, I guess, landing in a different part of Italy, if I remember the history right. And they're both trying to chase their way up to Rome, right? That's that's the, the history. Well... The resistance is going nuts, and like they're now getting brazen. Like Paul, like my grandfather tells a story about how one night they just walk into a train depot, and they're like, "Hey, how you doing? Have a beer, have a couple cigarettes, have this, have that." Meanwhile, literally, my grandfather's buddy is rerouting a train and sending it right back down south, and it's supposed to head back down south. And apparently, there was supposed to be an American or somebody a contact for the Americans. To t- offload all that stuff and give it to the gi joes who are getting ready to blast their way up north so like it's at this point we're talking dangerous stuff they were shot at multiple times and there's more of a german presence in milan so uh they he gets reported and the gestapo and italian military police (coughs) come by his apartment and they're like come with us and they cuff him and hook him and book, book him and throw him in prison right and he is scheduled to be hung. Wow. His girlfriend goes to the resistance and says, I have figured this out from day one. I know what he's doing. You need to save him. Otherwise, I'm going to the Gestapo and I'm going to the Italian military police. And they're going to come kill all of you. Try to stop me. I have all kinds of letters in my apartment that are just waiting to be sent. Just bring it. I, I have no fear. This is the man I love. So she gets the resistance to craft a story where that this complete mistaken identity, that he is a cousin to Giovanni Greco, but distant cousin at Beth's. So There's just a family resistance, and, resemblance, yeah, or resemblance, yeah. yeah. Sorry, and uh, and she gets him out of being hung. But apparently, it was 
down to like hours, like at dawn, you will be hung type thing. And she... So he got out of being hanged because they convinced him that... They convinced the local whatever military yeah, governor that, that he this is not guy. Giovanni yeah. Greco. This is that he's someone different. Um, they get him... She gets him out of there. Um, and then it's not long after the military police figure out they've been had. And I don't remember exactly what it is other than the fact that like someone apparently referred to him as John Greco oh. and like, there it is. basically like screwed it all up. Well, they killed the woman in looking for the woman. She resists and the, the love of his life, the love of his life. Oh, wow. She, they, 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 they come to the apartment and that's brutal. He has to jump out the fire escape and she starts screaming and yelling and they're telling her stop. Otherwise we're going to shoot. We know you're warning him. She refuses to stop. She starts beating the crud out of these, you know, two thugs that are coming to get her and they blow her away. They wow. just blow her away. So now it's on. He is now a full on wanted man. And he's livid. Yeah. And so he goes on a little bit of a tear where he starts picking off members of the Italian Royal Military Police. I think that's the term, Paul. Sure. But I honestly haven't checked the history yeah, yeah. like I should have. Um, but national level police. Yeah, yeah, they're they're looking for him, and he's a he's wanted for treason at this point. Like it is no longer desertion; <laughs> he's been upgraded to yeah. treason. Well, he needs to get out of Milan, and his idea is: I'll find my brother George, who, by the way, is in Mussolini's army. I'll find George. We'll go home, and then we'll get out of here. We'll go to America. There's got to be. I got to be able to work this out. That, that's what's in his mind. And America's the answer because it's the land of prosperity, melting pot, all that. I've heard you can make money there. You can start again. Like, like in his mind, America was clean slate. We can, we can start again. Because he's very conflicted about, did I do the right thing? You know, I did the right thing for me, but I did, you know, like sure. he, when he talked about it, especially when he was much older, not when I was a kid kid, but when I was in my teens, he really talked about it with, some regret because he wasn't with his unit when his unit went to Russia, right? And he had served a lot with this with the same unit and then when he was with the military police. So, um, is this boring? Is this awful? No, it's good. So, please tell me if it no, is. No, keep going, man. This is so, amazing. So, so, now he... So, that's his idea anyway. So, he has to... <laughs> to get out of town. Just grabbing George. Was George the second son? George is the next oldest. That's okay. right. That's exactly right. And and he was the closest with George. At least that's the feeling I always got from him because they were the closest in age. Right. I think there's only two years difference. So, although George was born in Sicily and I think he was born, my grandfather was the only one born in America. So, if I understand correctly, he gets on a bus and the bus stops and there's an entire unit, like four or five human beings an Italian military police and they're getting on the bus. And there's a hardcore bolo there. Yeah. There's on, a hard, your grandfather. Yeah, yeah. So, but this is the 1940s and, and in the 1940s women dressed obviously differently than they do now. One of the things was very popular um, at the end of the 1930s, beginning of the 1940s was this very slimming long skirt that women would wear. And that was the style. Well, for the past five or six years, he's been stealing medicine. And to be very clear, if somebody had a sick child, there's no work right now. Everything's bottled up because, you know, the military's got everything stopped. Nobody can afford to, you know, get penicillin for their kid who's a raging fever. If, if 
John Greco saw it, he would go grab it and make it available. Or if somebody needed food or somebody was out of work, that type of thing. So he was pretty popular. Pretty big hearted too. Yes, very big hearted. And uh, the women on the bus put him underneath their skirts and hid him between the front. Like, so those they're sitting on a bus. They're under the bench. Kind of he, yeah. Oh, he's under, the bench, he's right? under the bench. That's right. And nobody got off the bus for 90 full minutes as the bus drove all the way through Milan. And it became apparent um, because my grandfather said that when he finally did come out from underneath these women's dresses, it, which, which sounds amazing when you say that, right? Exactly. Uh, he, uh, he, like he said, they were all like perspiring. They were all like fanning themselves. Like a couple of them had fainted. Like they were terrified because apparently at one point this military captain terrified and hadn't moved and hadn't an moved in yeah. an hour and a half. And like the, the, the commander commanding officer was staring them down for like the last 30 minutes before he got off the bus, which, you know, really put everything to the test. Right. But he escapes and he starts hiding out in hay stacks and barns and underneath cars and stuff like that. So he's basically homeless for the next six he's months. He's desperate. He's deeply, Ste- deeply saddened. D- deeply saddened. Um, and now he's looking for George. So he, he, <laughs> he finds George and he explains everything uh, because George is working guard duty in some town, Torino, I think. Um, where he can finally get to George because George is on a city street, not, you know, behind barbed wire or in a barracks. And he explains to George, <laughs> according to my grandfather, George's like, okay, I guess we're going. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I have guns. Well, you know, and, and that was how that, what they did. He stole a gun from my grandfather and they proceeded to march south. And that walk south between hiding, foraging, the war took them two years. Oh, um, so, so if you walked it straight from where they, where George and John hooked up, it's probably a three week thing. I think it's probably maybe, longer maybe, than that. Maybe even three months, but, but uh, three because months. of the mountains and stuff like that. But to your point, it is made incredibly and exponentially harder and longer because they're hiding. Cause they're hiding. They're trying to keep warm in certain cases. Mm. Um, as my grandfather said, by the time they got to, I think it's Messina, I I may have the city wrong, but basically when they're getting ready to take the train across a bridge into Sicily, he said he didn't have a pair of shoes that he hadn't personally put nails through to keep the sole and the shoe itself attached, that they had walked so much. At one point, they stole a, uh, a pump cart that goes on railroad tracks, and they actually had to lift it and get it to sit on the track. It took them the whole day to get that done. And so they were able to, like a cartoon, you know, like, like you know, pump back yeah. and forth and get themselves down the rail cars until an American patrol would come, an Italian patrol would come. And when those things, they, they walked into a battle once where, <laughs> where a, a, a tank uh, a unit had, was blown away at machine gun nests that were, you know, on a mountainside. American military versus Italian military. Yeah. yeah. And and the Americans are out. I mean, Patton's boys are winning. There's no doubt about that, but they're making a mess while they're doing it. And for two dudes trying to hide out, um, my grandfather said, <laughs> he would always describe it. He would say, we had the best seat of the house. Hmm. The movie, she was a play and right there. But I don't like it. You know, that's, that's, how, that's how he would. I, mean, I was forced to watch it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think that 
for me, this is like, th there's two things here that I, I don't think people know. And, and I always re re refer to this. If, if you read any of the books like about Joe DiMaggio or if you, if you read the actual Mario Puzo Godfather book, right? Sicilians can be really, really suspicious. <laughs> like there's a cultural, you know, trend of paranoia of, of being paranoid around what's going to get taken away next, what's going to happen next. And it mm -hmm. has to do with the fact that a lot of people have invaded that island and, you know, that there's a lot, been a lot of strife. And so, um, as I've gotten older, I kind of have realized that this shaped him, right? That he would always live in fear of what if I can't go to the store and get it? So it, it, it'll wrap with the end of the story nicely. But eventually they get to the bridge where they're going to take the train carts about, um, two years later and they've traveled all the way through. Crazy. It is nuts. And, uh, the guy at the train station's like, I think you two are soldier boys. I think maybe you two are deserters. Mm. So my grandfather takes out a, a gun and puts it to this guy's temple and says, I asked for two train tickets. Maybe you didn't hear me. But I haven't seen my father in over eight years. So either we're going to go on the train or you're going to go with us. And I'm going to tell everybody that I'm burying you in Sicily. Mm. So they get on the train. And the train is packed with American GIs. <laughs> So where where did they pick up the train? Whatever I don't remember the name of the city, Paul. I think it's Messina, okay. but uh, but I but I that may be on the Sicilian side. It were... might be Syracuse I, okay. or or it might be Calabria. I don't remember. It's one of the towns between the heel and the toe of the boot, going over into Sicily. Mm. They get over into Sicily and they wind up having to spend the last several miles of the trip outside on the roof of the train. Because American GIs keep walking back and forth and they keep asking my grandfather and my great uncle George, you guys in the military? <laughs> they're flipped out because the answer is, well, not really, but they don't want to tell the Americans they're deserters. Yeah. Because they're scared the Americans will shoot first and ask questions later. This is, mm. you know, this is not a rules of engagement type war. No, no. This is a, you are in the land of bad people. The only safe people are back on American shores. So yeah, the rules of engagement came out of the Geneva Convention, which was after World War II. That's right. Yeah, it's in forty-seven. So like, if one of these guys, I could be wrong, Wait, but we're not going to Google it. We'll just go with it. That right. sounds right. Yeah. If someone draws down on him, the feeling I got from my grandfather was he was really scared. Someone's going to draw down and pull the trigger, you know, and shoot him for some well, reason. He's genetically paranoid. He, right? Genetically paranoid. His experience for the previous eight years. Holy cow! I'm paranoid. Right. Yeah. So they spend the last <laughs> couple miles of this train trip on the roof of the train, Mission Impossible style. Just trying to hide out. I don't know whether I want video evidence of the pump cart or, or the train, or the train ride. ride. So again, this is what he shared with me. And he didn't share like it was, it was, this wasn't a bullet, you know, this isn't a, ah, you know, right. this is more of a, pum, 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 pum. it's, it's and, probably going 22. Right. Yeah. So they eventually get home and, uh, my great grandfather's dead mm. and there's a new little brother who's running around four or five Vincent. And um, apparently, how did the, your great grandfather? So he was killed. Wow. Um, he was killed when um, military police and and Germans were there to face off against Patton, and they were trying to have a good time. And apparently, my grandfather's nieces were in town, and there was genuine like there was fear that the soldiers were going to do something to them. And my great grandpa didn't take any guff, and uh, apparently drew down with a shotgun, 
and was uh, had two rounds to the head put in him wow. by a uh, either a German or I don't know. It was never clear, honestly, from my grandfather's story, if it was a German officer or it was an Italian. It was an officer. I know that. And they, they killed him. Mm-hmm. So um, he died. And, um, you know, so now there's a bigger problem, though. And the bigger problem is that um, there's no economy. Like, there's nowhere to go sell grain and wheat. Yeah, like, it's a wasteland. The, yeah, the majority of Sicily is decimated at this point, right? And, you know, there are churches that are still stood up, and most of them are being used as makeshift hospitals. Um, there's American troop transports moving out. I mean, it's just, you know, constant, right? But nobody can sell or buy anything. So after a couple months of kind of seeing the family again, my grandfather starts reaching out to his connections in the resistance. And he <laughs> he figures out a way, like, hey, we were stealing from the Italian government. Aren't these Americans sending a lot of food into Germany right now? What would happen if we rerouted some of those train cars? Hmm. Like 20. Yeah, you're trying to take care of basic needs for a bunch of people. Food, medicine, tobacco, stuff like that. Yeah, basic needs, tobacco. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, you know, they they were Sicilians, Paul. Right, (laughs) I understand. so, So literally, he starts stealing this stuff, and this becomes a little bit of an underground economy. Well, the first hurdle is the local chapter of the Boy Scouts of America were like, hey, pretty enterprising. Have you forgotten us? And so he's like, okay, how much? Half. And what do you mean half? Nobody has a job. Like, So there's a negotiation there, and my grandfather has to, have a go, has to go have a sit down. And my grandfather, one of the things he was not was... Uh, He didn't lack courage. He'd just been through this ordeal. So he goes and tells the local mafioso, look, man, you want half? Why don't you just kill me? I'm not giving you half. No. Wow. So they take a quarter. And that's the agreed upon amount, right? And later, when my father visited Sicily with my grandfather, my father tells a story about how there was this aura of that's a tough dude. When my grandfather walked into a bar, a barber shop, local haunts. They weren't wrong, right? And, no. And, and it's one of the things I loved about him and I loved about my grandfather's mystique was just this rock hard toughness that he brought, right? He was afraid of nothing. Granite. Yeah. And so later, he, uh, <laughs> now the problem is he gets a telegram. This is now that the war ends. This goes on. For a couple of years, right? This is now 1947, 1948. And uh, he's still stealing everything he can. Because as you know, as you all know from history, more goods are being shipped, you know, as part of NATO to, to different parts of Germany, different, some parts of... They're uh, trying to rebuild. Yeah. They're trying to rebuild France. So like all the stuff they can get their hand. Oh, we need lumber? What train depot is it going through? Steal it. And... Life is getting good because my grandfather starts selling the surplus to other cities. And life's good until he gets a telegram. (laughs) The last trade car has been stopped. They are on their way. And so, you know, Mussolini dies. And so there's a new Italian government, you know, the one that effectively 
for better or for worse, is in place today. And so to establish any kind of rule of law, the military kind of establishes martial law right after the death of Mussolini. And that kind of stays there until it fades out into different municipal law takes back over. Well, municipal law is like, <laughs> keeps coming up short on the count. Like, hey, we're supposed to have 12 cars of macaroni. What happened to number 12? Well, it's gone. What do you mean it's gone? And eventually they catch up and they finger old Giovanni down there in Arona and he gets a telegram. You may want to take off now. So here's the problem. George has gotten himself entangled with a female. So he's not leaving. Sal, Louis, um, George, Sal, Louis, Vincent, John. Yeah, they're too young. Vincent's practically in diapers. Uh, to, to make sure that no, no heat comes on his mom, he throws everything he owns in a suitcase and takes the family horse and takes a ride to Palermo. And off on the first boat to America, he goes. By himself. By himself. And uh, at this point, he's figure, you know, he's in his late twenties, right? He's, he's, you know, he's been in. He's lived a lot of life. He's lived mm. a lot of life. Um, he's in his late twenties, early thirties, and the boat stops at Morocco. And apparently, passengers from Florence and other parts of Italy are getting on, and he bumps into a young woman who's from a different side of Sicily, and her name is Mary. Twenty-five days later, they were married. Hey now. And they got off the boat in New York. Now, Mary had two children with her because her husband, Peter, died in New York City. He was working on one of the skyscrapers. This is back before labor law said you, you had to have safety lines. And he, get a lay, he splat. So he had died mm. and she had had the two girls with her in Italy. Um kind of sitting out I always assume sitting out the war but I never quite understood the you know the reason for them being there a lot of uh I don't think there was a lot of love for my grandfather from the Russo clan which is her maiden name right, right? and a lot of her family had already come to America pre World War 2 some of them pre World War 1 They've got roots. They've got roots yeah. in the Bronx. They've got roots in a lot of roots in Brooklyn. So she's got plenty of family to go be with, right? Her sister is is there. And um, we were always close. My father, like you could see when he would visit them. You know, my father would get very wistful. Like he would get all misty. And I think it was missing my grandma. But I think the feeling was John was too intense. And he wasn't a good family man. Which is partially true. Uh, I think that was the outlook on him. But he came to America and he had a name of a of a family friend named Cafaso, and he found the gentleman's name was Bull. And it, they had, I forget the name in Italian, but it was Bull Cafaso. And Cafaso was a concrete contractor, and had you know hustled his way to get it, you know get some work. And so he they got an apartment in in Brooklyn, and they uh, or excuse me in Queens, and. Uh, for the next month and a half, my grandfather went from a mastermind of a criminal organization stealing basic needs to, I don't know how to order breakfast, so for six weeks I'm going to order a piece of pie and a glass of milk because I heard it repeated hmm. in English. And that's all he ate. For that. Yeah, hmm. and, and he said that for the first month that he was in America, he was so petrified at the noise and the sound that he only went to Italian clubs, read Italian newspaper, hung out at the Sons of Italy. Like He basically stayed in the microcosm of 
you know, the little Italy population um, in their part of Queens and in Brooklyn. Um, and he learned how to use the trains and, you know, stuff like that. But he didn't like that. He wanted his own car. He wanted that quickly. Um, but then Cafasso was the one who really said to him, you know, you live here. You need to learn how to speak English. You need, like, come on. You, I understand. There was a lot. You're, you're an American now. And, and that kind of brought him out of it. And then that became the third chapter in John's life. And, you know, in 1954, my father was born. So that's the story of John Greco. Yeah, up until he started having kids. Yeah. Uh, well, he only had my, my father. That was the only oh, biological. Really? Yeah. It was my father and then the two, Aunt Ro, Aunt Rosalie and Aunt, Aunt Viv. And I've told you stories about her. You know, Vivian was, she was larger than life. You know, she was everything about my grandma. She was a partier. She was a friend. She was, an, uh, she was an, uh, a bully. You know mm. what I mean? She got busted running Kino games in school. She had a bully throw a banana. Sounds like a filled. fun lady. Oh, yeah. She had a banana filled with mud thrown at her, and she took a cigarette, and she burned the kid in the face with it. She was so bad. Uh, she, I will tell you. this. <laughs> we, we need to get video. She was, I'll tell you this quick story. She didn't get along with my grandfather at all. They hated each other. Okay. Um, and and he, was, he was awful. In a lot Wait, of ways. what's his relationship? She that's her stepdad, basically. Oh, got it. Okay. And uh Vivian was just a tough woman, and she was like she remembered her father, and she didn't like the fact that he was replacing it. And living in Grandpa John's house, there was no other way but his way. And he reminded you that it was his house because he's still in that world of someone's gonna take all this away. So uh and he's still granite. And he's still tough as nails, that's right, still granite. So uh, she uh, <laughs> she would she would talk about the fact that she would do things her way and only her way, just like Johnny did. My grandfather, she called him Johnny, and we had a uh, an anniversary party for them in the 1980s at their house in uh, Nassau County, New York, and we were there. It had to be 120 degrees in the shade that day in this little house, packed with carpet, packed with linens, packed with china cabinets. A true Italian household, right? The oven in one of those houses never stops. It's 24 by 7. <laughs> the house is 4 million degrees. It is set to hell all the time. And I will never forget, we surprised him. Surprise! And she said, let me just run upstairs. I'm just going to go get something to change into. I'll be right back down. An hour and a half later, she came down in a long sleeve sequined velour evening dress. With a cigarette in a cigarette holder. And that's my vision of Aunt Viv. So th- there was all she these. She sounds like a piece of work. She was incredible. And my mother to this cannot. Like my mom is one of those people super tight and uh, super tough. And um, but she's my mom's one of those people. She doesn't like talking about it. Like I'll say something when I have something to say. Right. Vivian wants everyone, you wanted everyone to hear her. She wanted to be the center of attention. Right. I mean, you, mom, don't, you don't wear that get up and not want to be the center exactly. of attention. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and on top of that, her husband, you know, my Uncle George, God rest his soul. God rest both their souls. Um, he was an artist. So like, you know, they, they were the artsy couple. You know, they had Spanish mission decor in their home. They had like a suit of armor and they had like swords on the wall that were all blacked out. It was awesome. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was just awesome. Mm. And you went there and you're like, ooh. Like they were always put, you thought they were rich. Right, and the truth is, they weren't. But they always thought they were. And my grandfather knew it for what it was, but he never busted her about it, you yeah. know. But he never went to their house. They would come to my house, but it was, <laughs> but but it it was the that's who he was. So 
Stubborn. Yeah. Oh, super stubborn. Did, super stubborn. Did your dad inherit any of that uncompromisingness? Almost all of it. Almost all of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Yes. Well, I, I haven't met Papa Greco. I, yeah, he. I probably need to meet him. I mean, he's uh, he's tougher than I, and he would. In retrospect, and I, I don't give him enough credit for this. He was a good dad. You think your dad will listen to, the, to this podcast? No, not at all. Um, he could like first of all, he would go, Tommy. I don't even know how to listen to it. What are you talking about? I don't have a pod player. You, 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 and I'll be like, Yeah, you can, you can play it on your you phone. And he won't pay attention. It took him. It, he was. He's never been angrier at me than when I made him get rid of his cell phone. His cell phone was a 2008 uh, Android burner phone <laughs> that did not work 70% of the time. Hmm. And because I got him, I bought him and my mother iPhone 8s. And mine's exploded. I covered not just the cost of the phones. I cover the monthly cell bill. They have no cell bill. I do that because I, you know, yeah. I moved back here because I love you're my good, family. You're a good son. I'm yeah. trying to be, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You would have thought I had literally staked him to the desert <laughs> and let vultures eat at his entrails. The amount of pain that you would have, I mean, he just, he now, he can't live without it. He has an iPad, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. But getting mm-hmm. him, but dad, you really like the phone now. It's all right. Prideful man, super. Oh prideful. yeah, the, and the fact that I did that for him, like my mother, and she she enables it. Like for for Christmas, she said to Amanda, "And you've now been in my house, right?" Yes. She said, "Honey, I don't know if you have enough room for Christmas for all of us." <laughs> my parents' house is two thousand square feet, right? And this is not. Yeah. This is not two thousand. Right, exactly. So right. Th- that that tells you who they are. So Tom I'm, and Daniel, I'm going to wildly swing to a, a very different topic. Uh, Tom and I worked in Atlanta, as I mentioned earlier. And when I first started, Tom had been there for a few months. Uh, Tom and I ended up sharing an office. Uh, and there was a third person in the office. So yes. the, the three of us shared an office. And Tom, uh, you lived in Atlanta at the time. Yes. <laughs> Tom uh, was given uh, a concoction to drink. Several times a day, once a day. I don't. So, know, I don't know what the deal was. So everybody that worked in Atlanta, just just so that we're clear, like yeah, yeah. there were there were four people that we we all sort of kind of knew each other from working at a big bank here in Richmond. Giant bank. Giant. Wonder bank. which one we're talking. About. Right. Couldn't imagine. <laughs> uh, we'd all worked in different areas of that bank, but specifically, I had worked as a frontline manager in Paul's organization, but we didn't know each other. Like I was a name on a spreadsheet. Yeah. I didn't, yeah, really, to a I didn't really care about you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that. I'm saying you, you were, you had a large network even then. Right. And so I have not been in the, the, you know, game of operations as long as you had Paul, you were brought in as an operations executive and you brought in as a boss to our Atlanta gig, to our Atlanta gig. Yeah. Yeah. I was brought in as an expert in contact center and inbound contact center because there were contractual requirements for our company to hit certain service levels. And uh, so I've been brought in effectively for, for that reason. And so, and then I was given a lot of other projects, at, you know, on top of that, once we got that kind of stabilized. Um, and that required a lot of late nights. So we ate out a lot. And we all started gaining weight. Is that a fair? Oh, no doubt. Right. We were all. Yeah, also, you were. You were probably three fifty back. Then. I was. I was at least seven hundred pounds. Is this so, before you started eating out? No, we were. We were. I was not as big. I actually lost weight 
coming into that Atlantic gig. But the problem is coming into the gig, I commuted from where I had been living, which wasn't in Richmond. It was actually in Jacksonville, Florida for like two months. And the owners of the company really liked us. So they kept bringing us to steak places. They kept bringing us to Mm. these incredible restaurants in Atlanta. And, you know, we weren't exactly fighting them. So we'd all gained a lot of weight. On top of that, I smoked easily two packs a day and then sometimes three or four. Nice. Yeah. So my wife was very worried about me and she's like, can you start with these protein shakes because you won't be as hungry and then you won't eat out and then come home. Because what I would do is I would eat out with Paul and our boss and a couple of other guys. Then I would go home to my home like, would, like like you were getting paid right. by, and, and by and the pal. And I would eat again. <laughs> so like, my wife's a very good cook. Paul's eating my wife's yeah. cooking. She's great. Mm. So yeah, I was I was enjoying myself. And so my wife was like, have these protein shakes. So I did. Well, apparently a protein shake works. Oh, oh, hold on. I'm going to tell my part. Please, and then we'll come please, to your please part. do. Please so this do. will be from my vantage point. I'm, I'm going from point A to my office. And uh, Tom's not in there. Right. But the other occupant uh, was, and as soon as I get to the, the, the threshold, there's a little glass deal to the side of the, yeah. the doorway there. And I see what I can only describe as uh, expectorant, vomit. <laughs> oh, boy. Somebody has spewed all over. And let's be clear. I was the senior dude out of the three of you us. Absolutely this were. was my office. That's right. Somebody has vomited on my office. And I, I and I don't know whether it's intentional. Somebody's really sick. Like I, I should feel bad if somebody's really sick, or somewhere in the middle. There's just an idiot amongst us. Like I, I don't know what, what's happened here. And I say, Jim, what the expletive happened to Why is there this, this doorway? On this doorway, and Jim just loses it. He starts crying. He's laughing so hard. He's like, I think you're going to have, have to ask Tom. And I'm like, okay, well, where is he? Because I need him back in here to explain himself. <laughs> I was getting chewed out by your boss and ostensibly mine sure. for whatever minutia detail hadn't gone perfect, you right. know, in some analysis. So, like, we had to do a deck on why we're stupid. Right. And so, as I was presenting why we were dumb, I had realized that I had left expectorant all over the window. Here, here's what how do you How do you just realize that? No, I didn't realize it. Uh, so, before... Oh, 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 no, I'm sorry. And I'm, I'm missing one critical part before you tell no, uh, please. How this, all, all this happened. It looks like somebody has vomited, and, and either the same person who vomited or someone else <laughs> has essentially attempted to finger paint <laughs> in the vomit on the glass. <laughs> And I'm and I, I and while I'm waiting for Tom to come back, I'm I'm, I'm trying to pull it out of Jim. What the heck has happened here? And he like, can't get any details because because Jim is laughing. He's <laughs> laughing and he really wants Tom to to tell. Right, and and yeah. and so he ref, he's refusing, and Paul's getting angrier. And I knew he, I knew I was about to have fun too. So yeah. it was this mix of I'm about to be entertained, <laughs> but I'm still kind of angry. I'm kind of ticked. This is gross. So the 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 place where we worked, there was an outage. Or some kind of major system crisis. I don't know. Twice a day, three times a day. Back ha- when we, happened, when you first started, it happened, it happened a fair often. amount. Yeah. So I made this shake, and my wife had said, "Shake it really well, otherwise all of the powder will stick at the bottom." 
Okay. Like sticky sand. Right. And so I shake it two or three times, set it down. Hey, Tom, something blew up. So I go handle the blow up, right? And I leave the shaker bottle, um, which actually, for those of you that w- like Danny and I are drinking out of a, the exact same the bottle. The model. The model. Um, only it has this ball in it, which is oh, meant yeah. to help, yep. you know, break up the break up powder. The, the powder. Okay. I'm much better at this now than I was then. It's going back six years. So I come back and in my head, I have shaken said shake enough. Now I want to drink it because I'm starving. And the rest of the team has got totally brain cramped on the fact that you hadn't shaken right. it fully. So I take it, I sit down at my desk, and this other gentleman, Jim, is to my but di- diagonally behind me to the right. Paul's desk is diagonally behind me to the left. And directly to my left is the daylight portion of this doorway, then the door. Huge office. It's like the size of this table, basically. It, it, it was ridiculous. It, it was. I would have rather been in prison. <laughs> it was terrible, right? So literally, I upend this shaker thing, and I'm looking at. Uh oh, there's a chunk of sand that's about an inch thick, the width and circumference perfectly of the shaker bottle. Holy, which I did there, moving towards me and i'm i'm trying not to laugh about it but, but i'm starting to laugh about it because it looks like a cartoon it's literally like ooh, ooh, ooh. and i'm like oh and with that jim is laughing because he can see it and so i'm i'm already giggling well unbeknownst to me the form of said sand breaks down and it starts coming apart and now it's running into my face because I'm drinking and you're the figuring, liquid. I can devour this no problem. And I'm like, this doesn't is matter. I'm not afraid I'm, of this powder. I'm like a sperm whale. Right. I can crush <laughs> krill four tons at a time. Right. This should be no trouble. This is nothing. I will inhale this in my left gill. And you're good. Uh, I'm good to and go. you're off to the next Well, thing. instead, I start giggling. And I actually think I inhaled some of it up my nose. Some of it went down my windpipe. There's all kinds of problems. So what I think is going to be gulp turns into... And... On the last, it shoots out at Mach 9. And I think some of it came out of my nose. And it plastered. Guys, it hit the window like a paintball pellet. (laughs) It was a comet of this crap that left my face. I think it broke the sound barrier when it left. It left so fast. Because my whole body curled and then unleashed because of the coughing. So when I, it shot out in a tight ball. Yeah. Like it looked, it, it was tighter than the pattern of a shotgun. And it slammed into the wall so hard that people who were working in the <laughs> cubicles across the hallway looked up like someone had taken a gunshot. Like a paintball. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it splattered everywhere. Well, that made me giggle more. So now I'm giggling, but I still have liquid in my body. And more of the liquid shoots out and covers the plaster. From the giggling. Making it run. Jim is now on the floor. He was laughing. He's now on his <laughs> it's knees. It's probably the funniest thing he's it's ever seen. the funniest thing he's ever seen in his life. Tears are coming through the fingers of his hands because he's holding his face. He's laughing so hard. I curse and then immediately go to the bathroom. And I have with me a handful of paper towels from the bathroom. And they were super cheap. 
did not absorb anything. Right. And mm. like we don't have a facilities person at this point. Like right. there's no janitorial staff, at least not any that spoke English and then arrived before nine o'clock at night. Right. So like I'm on my own, but it's not like I've got the right tools to mop this thing up. But despite that, I'm not going to let it sit there. You're going to try to clean it up. Right. So I take a swipe at it. Hey, Tom, the boss wants to talk to you. And I look and I can see you. You're in a different conference room. I'm like, he just went in there. He's in a different meeting. He's in a meeting about risk stuff. They're talking about collections. No, Paul's boss wants to talk to you right now. He's really ticked about our assumption for productivity or something to that effect. So I grabbed my laptop and I said to Jim, I will clean this up when I get back. He didn't hear me because Jim is still trying to capture his soul, which is leaving his body because he's asphyxiating himself because he's laughing so right. <laughs> I pass you in the hallway. I go to talk to you about something. You are in full bore operations executive mode and you're, you are destroying poor Mark who ran collections at the time. Yes. And Mark is trying to get you to believe something and you are not happy. When I say destroying, you're never that kind of guy. I don't want to give anyone that impression. I'm saying my version. It's, of that, it's sure. an argument that Mark is losing and he continuing no, to he lose. He had no chance of winning. Right. And yeah. you're like, you literally are doing the thing where you're, where one, your whole face goes Pablo Picasso and you drop the right side of your face. To be clear, your face is four feet by four feet. But <laughs> like, your, your, your face moves and you do this thing where you're like, Mark, are you seriously oh, yeah. saying? And when the left hand goes index finger up, the 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 person play, either better have an amazing amount of evidence or just stop. Those are the two options. I prefer stop. Right. Mark wasn't stopping. Because Mark apparently That's not what he does. cannot hear he, English. He, he, he powers stop. through. Yes. Paul's getting I'm watching Paul change color. I'm like, I'll get to this when I get to this. And I go into the room and your boss looks at me and goes, Oh, nice of you to join us. And I'm like, awesome. This is gonna be the Have greatest a great day. meeting. <laughs> I get absolutely eviscerated in that meeting. I come out and of while that he's meeting, being eviscerated, I'm discovering I come out the finger in, painting into the, the office and I'm greeted with, Hello, Tom. Hi, Paul. Tom, can I ask a question? Yes, Paul. Do you wear diapers? <laughs> no, Paul, I do not. Well, I think you should because apparently you've got some spitty up from your sippy cup that has gotten all over my office. Would you clean it, please, Tom? Yes, Paul, I will. I'm very sorry. That's okay. Thanks. And with that, Paul turned his back and began plinking on his email. And that was how that day ended. It's a good day. Wow. Eventful. Yeah, the next week we were in that office until quarter of 3 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Working on the budget. And the chief financial officer came in at 1 a.m. and wanted to talk to our boss and proceeded to flap his gums for 45 minutes. Paul and I plotted against that human being for a long time after that. (laughs) That was not a good night. It was not. So how how old were you guys? This is only six years ago. Six years ago, so I was... This is 2014. I was in my mid-40s. Yeah. And you guys were staying up until 3 a.m.? There was no. Yeah, I, I know. Too. I know what you, you imagine that we fall asleep by nine. We're eating dinner at four thirty in the right, afternoon. Right, and no, then we I put just... on our Velcro <laughs> shoes to go walk in the ball at seven a.m. <laughs> no, I just ha- I have this image of you know slaving away at all hours while you're young, and then when you get older, you can kind of chill and have your family. That's but, that's a myth, kid. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the chilling happens if you're lucky when you're in your sixties. Yeah, like the the truth of the matter is is that it only gets worse. Yeah, and eh, it's good and bad. It does. It's a different kind of stress, but 
I would argue this, that Paul and I, and I don't want to speak for Paul, but it's not like we've got millionaires in our uh, grandparents and parents' lines. Uh, railroad, at, not, and not railroad tycoon, grandfather and uh, truck driver. Right. So yeah. you know about my grandfather, and so they, you know they weren't paying a lot then for people to make a nice driveway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and my mother's side of the family was no better. So the truth of the matter is you get a point where you, you earn for the next opportunity, and then that opportunity is to play for the next opportunity. And that doesn't end because the whole point is you're looking for that one game changer where you can say generationally, I want to do better for my kids. Mm, that's right. And you'll stay up late and do whatever you need to do. That's right. So, uh, Tom, rattle off very quickly. And then I'm going to pick one of these. Okay. Very quickly, all the cities you've worked in. <laughs> very quickly? You can do, kind, okay. kind of quickly. New York, Philadelphia, Jacksonville, Charlotte, Raleigh, Richmond, Austin. Atlanta. 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 Yeah, nice. Thank you. Um, did I say Charlotte? Yes. Did I say Raleigh? Yes. Okay. Uh, Virginia Beach? Yep. I think that's it. And you're not you're not 70. You're, you're... No, I'm, I'm 42. Yeah, I'm 40, 42. 42, and you just rattled off... Nine cities. Nine cities. So I think the my favorite stop of yours <laughs> is in Philly. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that seems to me to be one of your more fun... It was Mem- a fun memorable, gig. memorable gigs. It was the most. It think nothing. We didn't have kids, and uh, and and Daniel, this is not meant in any kind of way. When you have kids, you look at everything that you did prior to having kids as the fun, not playing with house money. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yep. It 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 doesn't feel like what you're pl- when you have kids. At least for me, I don't. Paul handles it better because Paul's. A, Paul's a better person than I am. Well, at least I'm taller. Right. right. And better looking. Um, but I, I, and, I, don't think, and, I don't think that's ever been a doubt. No. I'd big hearted. Uh, but <laughs> there, it <is. laughs> there it is. That used to be uh, his uh, slight at me. It, it wasn't meant to be a slight. It was yeah, meant well, as a compliment. It always was. It was. It's all. He's basically saying I wasn't tough and I'm kind of dumb. That's not what I was saying at all. That's it's not, all, it's it, all Please don't. That's not true. That's the infantryman in him. Anyway. So. What was your question? I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was so laughing about you saying the big part of the Philly. 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 Okay. So I was in I was in Texas. I had come home for Christmas. Pretty cool part of Texas, right? I was in Austin. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I wasn't working in Austin. I was commuting from Austin to a town outside of Austin called uh, Colleen, which is where, you know, yeah. 4th Infantry Division of the United States Army is housed. Fort Hood. Uh, Fort Hood. That's yep. right. Um, and at the time, it was the largest concentration of United States Army personnel in the country. Yeah. It's a um, giant place. It is huge. Um, and, and it was my first time working for an outsourcer. So doing call center on a budget and truly transformative. I wouldn't want to ever do it again, but Wow tough and very difficult for me and a lot of tough lessons and um very a, a gut-wrenching job was was the frequent moving around more because of your personality or because of the type of work yes both okay. that was a short answer so what you made more money each time you moved right? uh, yeah like to do i fell in love with what i did and i realized i was pretty good at it but you you get to a place, and I didn't know this then, where you, if you're not careful, you can kind of push and, and advocate for your people to the point where you really tick off the people above you. 
I did that a few times. A few times I just didn't believe that the company was going to provide a financial future. And a bunch of times, more the biggest thing that kept happening was my network kept growing. And as my network grew, people would say, oh, I know a call center guy. Yeah, you had more opportunities. And that's really what that I'm giving you the reason that I would be willing to leave and I didn't want to stick. And on top of that, Richmond was always home. So the back of my head, I was like, I'm going to get back here, but I'm going to get back here with some money in my pocket. I'm going to get back here in a big way. And that I was lucky that happened. Thank God, you know, two different times. Yeah. So does that answer the question? It does. Yeah. So um, it's a really good question. It is a great question. Please keep them coming. This is awesome. So tell us about Philly, man. So I come home for Christmas in 05 and um, the executive that. Uh, uh, tell, tell us who you worked for. So I worked for Dan Marini. Um, no, no, no. I mean the company. Oh, I worked for Convergis, which is now called Concentrix. And we were, you know, we were doing work for Capital One. And um, in there, Philly? No, 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 no. In Texas. Oh, sorry, sorry. And so yeah, we haven't uh, left Texas. But yet. the lady mm-hmm. that recruited me to Capital One years before in 1999, I I had sent her a thank you note when I got the job. And apparently phone agents don't do that a lot with, with call center recruiters. But for me, the the initial job at Capital One was a was a big it was a big job. It was the first time I ever had benefits. It was the first time that I ever, you know, worked in a place that was warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And so it was a big deal for me. So I'd sent her a thank you note. We wound up keeping in touch. She left Capital One. She, her husband was in the Navy and he wound up getting stationed near Philadelphia. What's the first name? Brandy. Okay. And uh, she, Brandy reached out to me as I was literally got off the plane in, uh, in Norfolk because we were doing the Southwest flight from Austin to Norfolk. Right. And so we got off the plane in Norfolk. We're going to the rental car place. And as I get to the rental car place, um, I get this call in my cell and it's Brandy. She's like, Hey, are you coming home for Christmas? I'm like, I am. I said, I'm in Virginia. Woo. You know? And she's like, um, good. Do you think after Christmas you could drive to Philly? <laughs> Why would I do that? And she's like, because I'm working for a headhunter firm and we've been contracted to find a call center manager for this ticketing company. I was like a ticketing company. I said, I don't want to work for a company that gives out parking tickets. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to pretend like you didn't say that. Um, it's actually a company that's a competitor to Ticketmaster. Like, you know, ticketing, like live entertainment, like concerts, mm. like sporting events. I'm like, really? Like, where is it? She goes, it's in Philly. She goes, you need to come up here. And I've told them all about you. And I said to them, I would call you and I would see if you'd be willing to come up for an interview. I was like, the day after Christmas? She's like, yeah, the day after Christmas. I'm like, okay. So I said, sure, absolutely. So I look up the company and I'm like, wow, this is pretty interesting. And um, I look at the job and the job says director. Now back then, you know, the thought of me becoming a director was like. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, that was nuts. So I'm talking to my now, my then girlfriend, now wife, Amanda. I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Director, man. You know, (laughs) so we plan it. We drive up there. And uh, I'm thinking this this call center is going to have like three, four hundred people. Now keep in mind in Texas, I have like three hundred FTE at this point. Started as four fifty, and then we, you right. know, some of them got carved off to go become customer service, and I had retention. But I mean, I had a lot of people, right? I had like fifteen, seventeen, eighteen team leads reporting to me at the time, and there was no junior ops manager. I was a senior OM, but like it was me. You're doing a lot. Yeah, there there was we were saving money. 
And so it was like, it's going to be you, team leads, and agents. That's it. Go to work. So I'm expecting the fact that they need a director. I'm going to have, you know, there must be like maybe 700 people, right? I get up there. There's 30. Okay. And they're like, but you're going to be in charge of the tech. I'm like, I don't work in IT. I, I, I'm confused. No, no, no. We need a new switch. A new what? A new switch. I, no, I didn't understand any of that. I'm like, I'm like, you're going to pick it though. Okay. And we need a budget. Okay. And can you do all that? Sure. Absolutely. And the CEO's name was Fred and he was Italian. And so he said to me in Italian, he said, uh, he said, yeah, you do a good job. You take care of the people. Tommy immediately called me Tommy. Didn't even ask. <laughs> he goes, and then a la salida, which is a dialect way of saying, I will leave you alone. And I'm like, okay, I'll, you know, I, I think I can do it. And so they're like, let's go to lunch. Let's talk it over some more. So I'd spent like half the day with them. Right. And the COO is this big dude. And he just looks mean. Like every, like he literally, I'm just the whole day. I'm like, well, you're in Philly too. The mean streets of yeah, Philly. Right? Absolutely. And so we go to lunch. We have this amazing restaurant. And I remember they're like, Tommy, have you had Italian food this Christmas? I was like, yeah, absolutely. I was at my mother's house. And they're like, oh, okay. So do you want a steak then? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And they're like, give him a big Philly steak. And so they bring me a cheesesteak. You guys, I mean, to this day, like it felt like I could have fed the ark. I mean, it was gigantic. <laughs> I mean, I ate it all of it, of course. I mean, you know, and the fries. Um, in the middle of devouring this cheesesteak, they're like, we're going to pay you this. We'd like you to come on board. And you like the number. And I love the number. The number was $20,000 more than I was making then. So it was a big deal. And you're closer to Virginia. And I'm closer to, closer to Virginia, first party versus third party. So I take the job. Um, without getting into the super nitty-gritty details, they give me a consultant, a telecom consultant named Sid. <laughs> Sid is the meanest human being I've ever met as with. As a consultant, he's mean? Oh, yeah. Um, Doesn't make any sense. He's probably one of the best telecom people okay that any he's better than he could do the work of any one team we worked with at the at I, the bank here i got you yep and um he would look at me he'd go kid i'm not gonna lie to you you have the combined intelligence of canned peaches <laughs> to be honest <laughs> not I've, the first time sid had ever said that <laughs> i i i have met gear shift knobs that have more going for them than you <laughs> But I'm not entirely displeased by your general bleak expression and your inability to figure out big syllable words. It's something to work with, a blank canvas. I think you'll be ready in 40 or 50 years if I cut corners. <laughs> Thanks, Sid. I appreciate that. Um, and Sid built me, but he taught me a ton about telephony, about IT, to, to the extent that I needed to know. Right, right. Um, and man... That education, I have parlayed that into into a big part of it. But he was tough. Now, what you want to hear about yes. is, okay. So the first big deal, the reason we needed all this prep work was because this ticketing company was owned by Ed Snyder, who, for those of you that don't know, is the owner, I think still the owner, of the 76ers. He was then, of the 76ers, the Flyers, um, the Phantoms, and I think he had some interest with the Phillies, but I don't know what it was. I don't think he had any interest in the Eagles. the Eagles. 
but he certainly was partnered up with those two organizations because they shared parking. If you've ever been to downtown Broad Street, Philly, right? It, you have the, the, back then it was called, or as Philly fans would say back then, the Wachovia Center, you know, down the spectrum. You you take the blue route to the Schuylkill and you go, you go be careful though, because in the wintertime, the trees will come right down and you'll, they'll go right over your core. You're trying to go to a Flyers game, see the boys, the bullies play, and all of a sudden you got trees falling down in a Schuylkill, it's a mess. Don't go down there. That's how, that's, you know, pure Philly, right? And there's a, the complex is a smaller spectrum arena, the larger arena, now the Wells Fargo arena. The link uh, back that just opened like two years after I got there, right? right? The old veteran stadium had just been torn down. And then Citizens Bank Ballpark, which truthfully, to just be honest, is a beautiful ballpark, yep. right? So there's a centralized box office that effectively runs all the shows that come through there, right? I had no idea. These people had all been working there 30, 40 years. And I was in the coolest generation gap that I've ever been a part of. So we had to discuss, hey, my boss would come to me, hey, hey, Tom, I want you to go down to the spectrum. And I want you to go in there and I want you to tell them, guys, what you can do in the phone room. You mean the call center, Dave? Yeah, like I said, the phone, <laughs> the phone room. Right. I'm like, like, like there was a room with a bunch of rotary dials yeah, going on, right? No he didn't care, right? He he could have cared less. And this guy was awesome. He knew ticketing. He knew shows. He knew promoters. He knew everybody. He was amazing. He was like a walking music encyclopedia, and he was a loving human being. Um, but he was tough, and <laughs> so he sends me down to meet with the Flyers for for. For for the people listening that don't know, people think that the this Eagles, is wait wait this is Daniel's mom and maybe one of my kids possibly listening yeah. my wife yeah for, for, right, who yeah. who does know so not her but your kids and Daniel's mom. Um, <laughs> to be clear, people that don't know, people assume when they think of Philadelphia sports, they think of the Eagles because that's what gets all the publicity, right? That's football. That's that's who booed Santa. That's where the judge was. And football like, is generally king in most and, big and towns. football yeah. is is generally king. And football is king in Philly for sure. But true love, like fanatical fandom, not people going and getting hammered, which is what happens at a lot of the Eagles games. I don't think that's any secret. True fanatical love are the Philadelphia Flyer games, right? That like it doesn't matter. They're in last place, we're going. Oh, they're in first place. We're going like Bobby Clark's going to be there. We got to go. Ken Hitchcock's going to be there. We got to go. The box office people I worked with, the quote unquote newbie had been there for 12 years. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. The lady who ran the ticket office used to babysit um, Bobby Clark's kids. Like, and Bobby Clark in that town, you got to understand like Ben Franklin, Bobby Clark. Wow. In Philly. And I have no troubles. Ron Jaworski, absolutely, but he's a he's a caricature of himself, and he never won a title. Right. Bobby Clark won two. Right. So they love them some Bobby Clark, right, meaning the fans in Philly. So I had to go down there and talk about what the call center could do. The I phone go, room. I, what the phone room could do. So I go in there, and you go into this front office area. Like, you know, Dave told me where to go. My boss told me where to go. And he's like, take my business card. You're going to need it. That's all he said. So I go down there and I go to the, the security lady. Can I help you? And she's giving me a look like you're not supposed to be here, right? I'm like, uh, I'm here to meet with the flyers. Oh, yeah, you're here to meet with the flyers. 
Really? So should I go get all the players out of the locker room? Come meet with you. <laughs> no, ma'am. I'm, I'm here to meet with Seal. And I'm here to meet with that other woman, Karen, about the ticketing system. Um, I work down in New Era Tickets. Oh, you work for New Era Tickets. That means so much to me. Thank you so much for clarifying. Maybe next time you can make it like a Trivial Pursuit game or something like that. Ma'am, I'm really sorry, but I don't want to be late. for the, He said, Dave said, be nice to everybody. So she's like, oh, yeah? Who's your boss down at New Era Tickets? Down in what what, what, what town are you in? We're, we're in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Yeah, down in Wayne, wherever. Down Glen, Glen Mill, wherever you're from. I said, no, ma'am. I'm, I work for Dave Homan. Hold on one second. Who'd you say you work for? I said, I work for, for, for Dave. Sit down right there. Do you need anything to drink? No, no ma'am. Hold on one second. Phones start ringing. I get bring, brought back to this office, and I get to go to a conference room that's above the spectrum. Yeah, you're loving it. And I get to see the ice that they, you know, they're just going to recondition. You're a huge hockey I, fan. I, I'm yeah. a huge hockey fan. Like, this is, Philly's one of the, you know, one of the first expansion teams, right? It's not a right. six original team, but it's an expansion team. There's been some pretty historic games with the Rangers, which is my team. By the way, that's the other thing Dave said. Whatever you do, listen to me. I understand that you're a nice Mexican kid, Italian, whatever. Like, <laughs> that's exactly how he, he goes, you're from Texas. It's all the same thing. Bottom line, you're a nice kid. Do not tell anybody that you're a New York fan. Kid, I'm dead serious. Do not tell anybody that. So I, I wasn't allowed to. So I get in there. I go into this room, and they're talking about the Santa Packs about how the Flyer fans can call up and buy a package with a autographed stick, a puck. And like there's like three packages. That yeah, you, yeah. Right? But it's only for the season ticket holders. I met with the box office staff of the Philadelphia Flyers for two and a half hours because I had to explain exactly how the call center worked. The phone room, yeah. Because it would be the first time that the Flyer box office did not handle it with two direct inward dial phone numbers. For those of you that don't know... You're, if you have a home phone, like if you have digital phone through Comcast or Verizon or one of the telecom companies, that is a direct inward dial phone. Like you have an area code and then you have another seven digits, right? That's how they would take orders for Santa Packs. So tens of thousands of people would call those two phone lines, wait for the busy signal to end, get through and talk to one of five or six box office people. And that's how they would handle it. And they would just stay late. That wow. was how they would handle this. And I was like, well, See, seems like there's got to be a better one. And they would look at me and go, so who who takes the calls when you're not there? Well, I don't take the call. Oh, do you hear that, Seal? This one doesn't even take the calls. <laughs> well, well, no, ma'am. See, I have frontline managers and see they're what? Why are they? What are, they, are we going to war? Are they? Is this Omaha Beach? Why is there a front line? Is there bombing going on? Well, no, ma'am. And then, hey. Nancy, could you give the kid some oxygen? He's turning blue. Like <laughs> that was like the conversation. It was like so caricature northeast. I was twenty-seven. Wow. I was twenty-seven years old. Everybody in the room was at least thirty years older than I was. It was incredible, and you know, I, but it was so much fun. Like there was, so like then the next thing they said was, "Hey, kid, listen to me very carefully." How many people can you get in the phone room at one time? <laughs> I said, well, Dave, I told you I can get like, you know, 60. He's like, okay. And how many at Cytel? And I said, I can get another. One million. I said, I can get 300. Yeah. You know, because I had made this deal with Cytel where 
they basically overstaffed their Saturday mornings and they'd gone to all their, you know, clients and said, basically, we'd like to take some people off your lines, move them to new era ticket machines and have them just use the website to take orders. Yeah. For, you know, when tickets would go on sale. And we want to do it from 9 to 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12, 12 to 1. And then we're going to put everybody back. And my job was to sit there with this flat screen. And I would have to scream at Cytel on a bridge line, put him back, put him back, put him back. Because, you know, we didn't want to pay for the, the labor. Right. Right. So no, I would no, have no. to scream at it like I was, you know, like a fire command, you know. And it was. Like it you was, were on the bridge. Like that's exactly, hence the name bridge line that I would, you remember that. Nice. So anyway, uh, we put Bon Jovi on sale at the ballpark. Now, John Bon Jovi is also revered in Philly. So I will tell this story that when John Bon Jovi went on sale, at 9.58, I had 300 calls in queue. At 10.01, a fire began in the server room because the hits at the number had reached 10 million per second. And the media gateway wasn't configured right. Is This is the explanation I got at the time. I have no idea if this is technically correct. Basically, the media gateway was actually trying to digest that from the hosted telephony solution so the software is working fine but as it's sending traffic to my little center in philadelphia <laughs> the sheathing on the back of this server blade isn't cooling properly <laughs> and it explodes <laughs> and i had to go John put a fire bon out made a server explode. i had to go put the fire out get everybody out you believe put everybody story, back on the, the phone story? i believe it that's yeah. the, 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 the truth <laughs> like i remember that and then i got to go help put bon jovi on i got to go to the concert that's awesome so yeah, it was a great. I got to go see Madonna. So you resolved that whole situation in about 20, 25 minutes. Yeah, I can be very forceful when I'm allowed to yell, and so wow. so yeah, Paul seen that. Yeah. So um, the uh, it's entertaining most of the time. Yeah, I mean it's just it's like a combination of Donald Duck and a Weebles people. So, <laughs> so and, and a, a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So yeah, like we resolved it. Bon Jovi went, you know, went off without a hitch. Um, I got to go to Madonna and sit almost front row for Madonna. Took manage of that. Got to see the Who. Yeah, I, I'm jealous. Yeah, like, uh, sure. got to see Kathy Griffin um, at the Borgata Hotel and Casino. Um, got to see um, Duran Duran um, in the House of Blues, which is very intimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, venue. So um, we got to do some cool, really cool stuff um, when I was when I was there. So it was, it was a fun job, man. Yeah, once you got comfortable, right? It had to be amazing. It, was, it took about seven or eight months, but they didn't want me to leave, and I really didn't want to leave, but uh, I thought it was best. So we'll save all your other jobs for another podcast. I want to talk about uh, something that you do prolifically, okay. or at least you used to. I'm not sure if you're prolific anymore. Uh, but to give the uh, listenership, Daniel's mom and one of my kids, uh, <laughs> Not even your wife. A comparison. Or, like, can we, or the your wife can at least... No, she doesn't care. Oh, okay. She doesn't care at all. Okay. No, not at okay. all. Uh, every time I say the word podcast, she rolls her she eyes. She just rolls her yeah. eyes and says the thing my husband does on Thursdays. Right. Right. Okay. So, Daniel is a vegan. There, Most things that oh, I, 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 I consume um, <laughs> would violate veganism, right? Mm-hmm. Tom, probably of every living human, has violated veganism more oh, yeah. in terms of quantity and variety. And frequency. But, but, and frequency. 
But let's talk about quantity for a second. Uh, when you were at that giant bank that nobody will figure out what, which one right, we're talking right. about here in yeah. town, uh, there was a competition over some McDonald's. There you know, was. Could you, could you tell that story? Yes. So, I, 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 Daniel, this is where you will learn a ton about <laughs> So right. true. So uh, I returned. I, one, of, one of my best friends' name is Ron. And when I, when I left the, the bank here in Richmond, I went to go do a lot of these other jobs. He stayed. And his career kind of took off. Mm-hmm. And he was making a run to be a peer of Paul's in 2009 most most men and women have failed right absolutely um so the uh (laughs) so he had called me and asked me to come back to the bank and work for him and i did and i was having a very successful year but one of the things that i got access to this second time around at the bank was analysts i never really worked with anybody closely before that had that title. And at this particular bank, they're very good at data. They just are. They, they've got oh, they're, it. They, they're amazing. They're, they're yeah. amazing. They invest. They invest and, and it, and it shows, right. They go and get the best and the brightest right out of college. And they well, literally, all three of us have worked there. That's right. Cause, cause we're the best and the brightest. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, although okay. we came through the call centers, different story, but anyway, right. the, these, these are kids that come out of college and get put into a program where they're professionally developed they really get an opportunity to get a cross section of the bank. And it's an all amazing its opportunity pieces. for those. It's a it's a great those program. Kids, yep. I'm I'm jealous of it, and I and I wish more employment employers handled things that way because they these employees are generally incredibly productive. And specifically, I worked with ops analysts, and ops analysts had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder because they were not paid as much as their business analysts you know, brethren, but they were considered a higher degree or of higher complexity than the data analysts who I think we kept in a closet with duct tape over a vent. And, um, you know, so, so ops analysts were definitely chip on the shoulder, but you know, youngish new in the game, ready to mix mix it up, you know, young Turks of the world, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And they see me and I'm fairly quick witted. Um, I like mixing it up. I like Bantor. Um, and, uh, they're like, Hey Tom, you know, you wearing a sweater vest today? Yeah. Were you in my closet or are you writing a book? Yeah. What if I am writing a book? Leave this chapter out make it a mystery. You're a smart kid. You'll finish it while you're young. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that would be like, you know, that's him breathing. Right yeah. There, that's right? pretty standard stuff with me. So they really like that. And so it came. They'd never seen any, anything like it, right? There, there right. was. They were trying to like, you know, they had biology books open. Is he human? What do you feed this? Oh, nice. They had a they had a boss who's a good friend of mine as well. His name is Todd. Todd would talk about how he was a prolific eater, and my buddy Ron was like, um, "To be clear, you are nothing compared to Tommy." And Todd's like, "I don't agree at all." And Ron immediately. Without thinking, hesitating, immediately goes into bet mode. I will bet you 50 bucks, Greco Canaudi, you and any two people on your team. Combined? Yeah. Three on one. And I'll take that bet all day. So he bet on you. You weren't, were you in the room? No. Um, This happens all the time. Um, And so. And Tom's like, sure, I get to eat stuff. And I'm like, yeah, this sounds amazing. (laughs) It's the fall. And as you may or may not know, 
McDonald's typically has a wonderful season that begins in the late September. I've never had early this. October. I've never had and one you've of these. missed out. They they, they look disgusting. Uh, they're the most fantastic piece of fast food Surely that's ever been developed. You're discussing. You're talking about the McRib. I am. Have I you sure ever had am. a McRib? No. Yeah, you shouldn't. I missed the window. Yeah. They're all. To be clear, they're fantastic. I will not eat McRibs any longer because they're not good for you. Um, but they are tasty. Mm. You mean the pressed? Yes. Uh, meat scraps the, from the, some factory the, floor. The, <laughs> the if if you were to create a construction material equivalency, it's like the food MDF. <laughs> like it's yeah. multi-density fibrous board food. Yeah. I don't I don't even know how the body deals with it. I don't know either. I think the body just kind of is like, uh, okay, we'll put it in the fat cells. We don't know what else to do with it. Right. right? It's like a weird it's long Christmas decoration. What do you do with it? Right. right. Don't know what to do. <laughs> so I said, if that, we're going to do this, then I want McRibs. And we eat in plain view. We set up the rules, and so we went. And we went to the McDonald's on Patterson Avenue out in the West End. And so we get there. We go up to the counter, and Ron's like, have you had any breakfast? I'm like, no. He's like, did you have dinner last night? I'm like, yeah, it was around 6.30. He's like, how are we doing? I'm like, I'm hungry. He's like, fantastic. So Ron goes and puts another 50 bucks on the deal. And we order, I order my normal six McRibs um, and two large fries and uh, a large soda. So <laughs> back then, what year was this? This is 10. 2010 Webster's Dictionary from 2009 to 2011, I think. Next to the word gluttony was Tom's. Face. Yeah, I was <laughs> Yeah, it was one of the yeah, absolutely. That's when true. You, when you say it's normal, that's what you'd get when you'd go during McRib season. Yeah, yeah triple absolutely. digits. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, <laughs> I was, I was a fan. Like, and this is during a time in my life when it was like there were others. The, the thing about it was Ron had data points that Todd didn't have. Like, hey, can you eat three Chipotle burritos with extra chicken? Yes, yes, I can. Can you eat? Five seven-layer burritos from Taco Bell. Yes. By the way, like Daniel a, is disgusting. He's right. a very... Right. Oh, come can, on. Can you eat... <laughs> you should be. Can you I'm eat... I'm disgusting. Can you eat six double quarter pounders with cheese from McDonald's? You've actually seen me polish yeah. off four. Yes, as so, an appetizer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, I was a prolific eater. Um, so, we get there. I order six and fries and everything. And I sit down. And, like, I honestly don't care what happens because... You get to eat McRibs. I got to eat McRibs and I didn't have to pay for it. Ron paid for it. Todd gets two. His One of his analysts gets two and his third analyst gets two. Todd finishes his two and immediately starts grabbing his stomach as he's apparently had some kind of cramp, some kind of problem digesting all this goodness. I have two and look over. Now, here's the problem. They also try, and this is where they made an error. They tried eating at the same speed at which I can eat. Before going into call centers, I worked in retail the entire time I was in school. You never eat lunch when you're selling, right? Because you don't want to miss an up is what it's called, a chance to present to a customer and potentially get their business because that's potential commission. So what you don't do is you don't take time off the floor that much, right? So you grab your little cleaning rag and your little thing and you're out there on the floor and when somebody calls in subs, 
You go and you get like half a sandwich and you plow it in your maw. You swallow it whole. <laughs> and then that night you devour the entire earth as soon as the store closes because the opportunity to make money has now ended. So I was used to that. So I made sure that we waited until like two o'clock in the afternoon because I knew they would be hungry and I knew I would be ravenous. So I had two was plowing away on my third and I look over and Todd's grabbing his stomach. Todd's the guy that was apparently legendary and could eat a lot. That's what I was told. But to be clear, he was, it was in his own mind. Okay. And so he'd never seen anything like Tom. So the one analyst kid has eaten half. Kyle has eaten half of a McRib. Shout out to Kyle. Shout out to Kyle. Way, way, way to go. Good way to go. Way, knocking way, down way, half. Way to enter a McRib contest. Right. Yeah. right. And, and, and he's eating like the majority of the first one, but he's slowing. You can just see him turning color. Like I've never eaten anything this process before. And I'm now on my fourth. And Miles is the other one. <laughs> and Miles oh. attempt is, is actually was in the United States Army Reserves and had been in VMI and had finished at VCU. And he's a pretty fit fella, right? Like he was never a big, like fatty dude. So this is more calories than like the underestimating here was around the calories and what it does to you. When you ingest a lot of sodium that quick and you're not used to it, your body starts to sweat, heart rate goes up, bad things happen, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're not used to that, you get a little wigged out. And you could tell he was like, oh, my God, it's so hot in here. <laughs> well, I could tell I had it won at that point because Todd, can't, I mean, he Todd's now on the second, up. but he's cramped up. Kyle's like, it looks like he's going to be sick any second. And Miles is like, oh, God, he can't even finish the first one. I looked at them and I've, I've just finished my fourth. And I was like, are you guys done? They're like, how many have you had? I go, how many? Hold on. And I took the fifth and the sixth one and I combined them and pushed down and ate them together and finished off five and six. <laughs> like, then, a, like, like a pig eating slop. That's right. Barbecue sauce had fallen onto the cardboard containers that these come in. And I used that as a makeshift ketchup for the rest of the fries. Proceeded to polish off a soda and then I ate one of theirs. <laughs> you were just toying with them. I, yeah, I mean, it was not... It was not hard. Like, it was fun. And that was Tom's first mild heart attack. Right, right. <laughs> and so yeah. Ron skipped out of there $100 richer. And um, this became a common thing. So every time we would travel together to a supplier, there was a Brazilian steakhouse. Todd would try to out-eat me. If there was a new, like, a Why city, was he even trying at that point? Because he just thought it was fun. Okay. And, 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 you know, and Todd, Todd likes to eat. You know, he, you know. But that's the story. I of, love it. Of my prolific eating. Wow. So, that's um, one of the stories. There's another one with Paul where I actually consumed at Paul's behest an entire pizza, and uh, we got oh, free beer. Oh, that we can tell that story absolutely right. very quickly. Uh, and, <laughs> I don't know if you're going to have any insightful questions based on the, this last story and the story we're about to tell. No, this is great. And Tom, help me with the details here because I'm I'm a lot older than you. Um, but but better looking. Uh, yeah, that's not, it's not in doubt. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, we, we go to the place we would always go. I think we weren't sure how many people were coming. Yes, that's right. You ordered two. The, the question was, do we need three pizzas or four? Right. And I was like, uh, we need four. And I said, okay, Tom, that's fine. But I, I think only making the number up five people are showing up after us. Four is maybe too many. 
why don't we just order three? And you were adamant. We are going to... I was like, we're, Paul, we're getting really four. hungry. And these are not like thin crust, no, no toppings. These are gigantic stuff. pizzas. And, and everything, everything you got in the back, yeah, double that and put it on these That's pizzas. Right. That's correct. These were also meat lovers. Meat lovers with sausage. or deluxe. I mean, yeah. Oh, so good. And so I said, Tom, that's fine. You order that fourth pizza, you're finishing whatever pizza's left. When everybody else is like, we're done, we can't eat anymore, you're finishing that pizza, which essentially meant that six people or maybe seven finished. Everybody dropped out. To, to finished put, three. Fin- we, we finished the three, right? Or did you have more? There was. I had the pizza plus two slices <laughs> because you jerks backed out. <laughs> oh yeah, that was the that was the least amount of pizza I've probably ever right. eaten you, in my you life. You literally ate like a twelve year old ballerina, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, I'm full, and I was like, oh, you're kidding. <laughs> I think I ordered some wings. <laughs> right, exactly. There, and, and I had some of the wings though, uh, just to be clear. Oh yeah, yeah. But you were in trouble for the last. Two slices. The last two slices, I was in full sweat. I had to walk around. I had to smoke a cigarette. Oh, and I, I was I had, so happy. Yeah, but but I did finish it. Oh, yeah. And course. what happened of when course I finished it? I don't remember. We got free a free pitcher. Oh, that's right. Because we told her what you were doing. That's right. Yeah. That that's 100% good. right. right. <laughs> so that was where the... Pro, that's why Paul now understands and believes. Apart from the fact it's been corroborated. I couldn't believe it. Paul literally at that I point not believe said it. to me later, I really believe now all of these stories yeah. that I've heard about you. Because he's heard them from other people, I think. Sure, right? sure. As, as well as me. About going to Cadoba or to Chipotle. Like, I can have four Cadoba burritos, three Chipotle burritos. Oh, my God. Uh, and he's not bragging. These are just facts. Yeah. That's, yeah, just, yeah. I mean, and to be clear, I actually wish it weren't true. Because what happens is you get used to consuming that much. Now I'm in a place where, look, I'm, I have vacillated between my lowest weight and where I am now for the past two years ish. Yeah. Um, but when I was working with you the last time in eighteen, I got as high as two. Let's just say, a really uncomfortable weight. Well, and the audience thinks you weigh two or three ten. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Sure. Um, that's fine. So I got to five hundred. Let's say that <laughs> right. Since I'm trying to do the proportional math in my head. <laughs> but the point is, like, I'm trying to obviously get down, and it's a challenge because. I have diabetes in the family. Gee, didn't see that coming. And um, obviously, I worry about heart rate. And so I'm going to the gym several times. I've obviously made a, a big 180. But it's a challenge because of that. So it's not smart to be that way. It was just mm. a way I could be accepted. So Yeah, um, yeah. Right. Oh, that was deep. Right? I think my favorite part of that story is Paul like refusing to eat more than a slice. Yeah. It was just so the, he yeah, could watch you absolutely, suffer. Absolutely. Watch out for the I'm, trickster. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sadist. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, also, a I'm, a, I'm also a masochist. You're, I don't think you're either of those things. I think you're a trickster. Trickster. I think you love to, to, to have spiky humor that's mildly at someone's expense. I said mildly because no, you don't no, like to be mean. Good. You don't like to be mean. You, you, you don't like kicking someone when they're down. That's true. I, you I, have like, a, I, like to, I like to mix it up. You have a shutdown button. But if someone's mixing it up healthy, you'll go with them forever. Let's go. Let's like do you're, it. You're, you're, you'll go forever. Yeah. You know. Which is partly because it takes that long in the most gigantic head recorded in human history <laughs> for the thought to bounce around yeah. in there. Would you? I, I don't think Daniel's heard this story. I'll tell a big head story. Okay. Because uh, I believe in self-deprecating humor I, as well. I know you do. So I uh, played football as a young man, and uh, I was fortunate enough to make the varsity football team. It was my first time on the varsity football team, and I was walking through the equipment line. And there's an equipment manager who's who's there passing out helmets and, and I, I get to his <laughs> here we go little station have i told you the story no get to his little station I, i'm a big dude he's right. a, he's a little guy right. and he but he's sizing me up 
he's like right. measuring my head. Right. And uh, he's 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 like, okay, I got two sides. I got Gulliver. And then, <laughs> no, but he's, well, he's got. I think helmets back then went from like six inches right to maybe seven and three quarters. And you're sitting there at six feet in diameter. No, no, not in diameter. Well, yeah, I mean, your head my is head, six my foot. head, yeah, sure, yeah, maybe, that's what I maybe. Mean. Yeah. So he looks at me. He's like, "Oh boy!" And, and I, he, he turns around. He starts moving helmets around because he's got to go to the especially large right. helmet part. He's, he's got to go he, to the small platoid. And, and he, hold, he holds it up, and he, and he looks at the helmet. And he looks at my head. And he goes, "Ah, this might work." And so he hands me the helmet, and I, and I put it on. And I've worn plenty of helmets, and I know what fits and what doesn't fit. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, it's a little tight. But he went to the the big helmet part of the, of the uh, pile there. I don't. I, I think I'm going to tell him that it's too tight right. and take a chance that he's got something better. Right. Do you have any things in a Jupiter? Right. <laughs> think, think rings around giant planets. And I, I hand the helmet back to him. I said, do you have anything like an eighth of an inch bigger would be perfect? And he just looks at me with this matter-of-fact expression and goes, uh, in order to go bigger, we're going to have to get you a specially made helmet. And trust me, I will tell everybody that you're the kid with a specially made helmet. And I'm like, yeah, I'll take that one. Yeah, that sounds I'll, great. I'll, t- Thanks, I'll take buddy. that one. Thanks for endangering my cranium, but hey, right. why not? Yeah, right. whatever. Yeah, we didn't know about CTE. Or right, right, exactly. Wearing tight helmets. <laughs> so your head's been the same size for like It's giant. I have, 30 a, massive, years. I have a massive noggin. And, I, and uh, doctors have proven, uh, probably 10 years ago, that I use about 2% of my brain. Oh, is that it's right? It's big, it's, it's, but I'm only using about 2% of it. That's a generous estimate. Well, I, I, nice, so. nice. Think, nice. That's, very that's good. Very about. good. Yes. Daniel, that's great. Mixing it up. I love that's it. That's right. Let's talk about the J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. We can, yes. When will they win their next Super Bowl title? I have I think no they, idea. They haven't won in 51 years. Correct. You were not alive when they won the Super that Bowl. That is 100% correct. Will you see a Super Bowl before you... There will be no Super Bowl for the Jets until Tom Brady is out of football, or or not with the Patriots, because they will not get out of their own division. Right. Okay. Right. So there's that. So Tom's probably leaving the division either this year or next. Everyone says that. I'll believe that when I see it. Right. I think this is all cat and mouse for Brady to get the contract he wants. But okay. That's my belief. Bill Belichick has proven to be, as much as I hate admitting this, because, and. For those of you that don't know, I really dislike all the New England teams. Like, I <laughs> Here really dislike them. Like, I, love it. I passionately dislike I'm them. I'm not a fan of them either. Um, but the truth is, Bill Belichick is a legendary He's coach. a genius. He's a genius. Until he leaves, we're not going to win. So that's... So he could probably coach another 10 if he wanted and to. And I think that we're looking at that plus. Now, here's... So a, you're, you're now in your 50s yeah. when Belichick retires. I think there's a chance they win before I die... Maybe. And I think it comes down to two things. One, they're drafting better. Like, I think Darnold was the right guy, right? Like, I think you had to go get that guy. His upside is definitely there. His upside is there. We have not had a defense within the Jet ranks since Bill Parcells was coach. Yeah, it goes back a really long time. And that's Brian Cox and um, Patrick Sartan, I think, was one of the free safeties. Um, the, you know, there was Kevin Mawai was up there, you know, it, it was, I think he was offensive yeah, line, but Mawai was the center. In that. that, but, but you get my point, like that crew, that Curtis Martin, Vinny Testaverde, Wayne Krebet, Keyshawn Johnson, yeah, on the offense. either hall of famers or near hall of famers. Right. Yeah. That, that was the offense, but the defense, I keep going back to Brian Cox. He was just so good. Um, but all of that, that, uh, even when we had Cromartie and, um, Revis, 
the defense wasn't as strong that ye- those years with Mark Sanchez under Rex Ryan. Right. It was not that dominating, you know, suffocating attack. I mean, I remember the years that Parcells was the coach, um, or or right succeeding that when Keyshawn Johnson got traded to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yep. Um, and the Jets won that game. Um, and I think there was only one touchdown pass thrown because we could hang out back then with a top tier defense like that. Right. I just don't. I I I, I just don't see it now. Who knows what changes? I completely admit I'm not uh, not an NFL savant anymore. Not that I really ever was, but yeah. I mean, San Fran came out of nowhere. They were they were awful. Yeah. Last year, even. Yeah. Like I. So I, don't know. I also think we need a coach. I would love to see Mike Singletary come out of retirement or, or come out, you know, I would love to see like a Mike Singletary type coach, a fanatical type of super disciplinarian. Yep. I think that kind of prolifer, like th- th- big personality, right? You, you just can't have Jeff Fisher would not be a good coach in New York. Would not. No. Yeah. Not in my opinion. Right. Cause right. you've already got a chip on your shoulder. Cause you're playing in the giants house. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're the little brother. Right. right. So to, to, to win that, you kind of have to You're do not it. even number one in your own city. That's right. And, and like, I really appreciated Rex Ryan's approach. Like, I love the whole, we're not going to kiss their right. Like, I, 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 I that. think that could have eventually worked if they stuck, stuck with it. I think so. I think what happened was he put all his horses on Sanchez. And yeah. It didn't work. And, and at that point, he was trying to piece together defense. And uh, I think he was so prolific. It was like, okay, you're too much of a clown plus this. You're out. So it's my thought. All right. Right on. At least uh, I think you know being a fan of of a team like the Jets, nobody can doubt that you're a real fan. That's right. Yeah, that is you're, you're loyal, right? That's yeah. yeah. I mean, we're in your basement. You have a. I mean, this is this easily will be the only basement I ever go to <laughs> that has a Vinny Testaverde jersey up on the wall. Well, yeah, that's right. That's right. There's, so there's no way somewhere in this house is his autograph when he was with the University of Miami. Um, yeah, that those teams were good. Yeah, they were, um, and he was. I can. Like, people that never... First of all, let's go back. Those games were not available in New York on television. It's crazy. Right? That's number one. This is the earlier, early to mid-1980s. Let me just be really clear. Go to New York now and ask about college football, and you'll get the best response you've ever gotten, or you could ever get. But you go back 20 years ago, there are two schools that everybody, true New Yorkers, followed. Want to know what they were? Hmm. Penn State, Notre Dame. Sounds right. Right. Why? Because it's where Catholics wanted their kids to go. My mother, right? I'm in Richmond, Virginia. There are a gajillion colleges in Virginia. Hey, Ma. And a lot of good ones. And a lot of really good ones, right? I applied to William and Mary, JMU, GMU. I applied to uh, Tech and I uh, applied to Old Dominion. But I think I'm going to go to Bland first and then, you know, we'll work it out after that. Tommy, did you apply to Notre Dame? No, Ma, I didn't. I really didn't. Tommy, just go ahead and put it in an application. No, Ma, no. It's like five essays. I'm not doing that. Every right? Italian mother has its every every Italian Catholic mom wants their kid to go to Notre Dame. So, huh. so that's 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 a big deal. But when he went to the University of Miami, when he was about to win a national championship, people wanted it to happen. And the description, my uncle, Aunt Viv's husband, was on the train with his uncle. And they got an autograph for me. Oh, nice! And uh, it was he. You, I can. He was from Hempstead, which is out on the island, right. right? So not only was he an Italian New York quarterback, but he was from a real place. He wasn't from like 
the Bronx. You know what I mean? He right. was from like where real people like people left from the a real city. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. So it was the fact that he, you know, the fact that he had done that was was amazing. And then when he went to the NFL, it was amazing. We got Tom's little uh, chin up in the air, like super satisfied. <laughs> Video. It's on video now. It's true. That's that was true. awesome. That's true. That's true. That, that, that was a little, little moment of contentment. That it is. It is. I love talking about this. That's why. Yeah, it's that, great. That, that's true. It's hundred percent true. It's fun. I, I still think it's ridiculous that there's a Testaverde jersey, but I understand it better now. It, it, it was because he, he was a Buccaneers quarterback for a long time, and he got his head handed. To it was, those were not the, good days. Those were not good days. days. Hey, maybe he's confusing orange with the other team's colors. That why he's so. Th- that is why because he is colorblind. Right. That's an absolute truth, and it didn't help him. No, no and way. that's why the yeah. armbands came out for the Jets. I was Parcells solved the problem. Yeah. Oh, you're colorblind. All of you, all you eligible receivers, come here. You will all wear. And if you go back to the footage, I forget what the specific positioning was, but he solved it. Yeah. You know, oh, Parcells is also a genius. Yeah. No question. Yeah. No question. Cool. Well, I've had a blast as always talking to Tom. Uh, I think we're going to outro here. Do we even outro or do we just do the music thing? Just the music thing, I okay. think. No, I like it. I don't, yeah. Well, I don't think we need but it. But like, thank you. Yeah. Thank Tom. you so much. Thank Tom. you guys. Tom, 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 Tom will be again. back. Oh, I yeah. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate it.